Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. Welcome, I'm your host Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. Today my guest is Ray Dini, a Brooklyn native who retired in 2011 as an attorney specializing in mental health issues. In New Jersey, he participated in Audubon field trips, Christmas bird counts, and citizen science projects. Ray currently leads bird walks here at Tohono Chul, at the Tucson Audubon Mason Center, and seasonally at the Arthur Pack Park. It's good to have you on today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Of all the places you lead bird walks, which do you visit on your own time? Well, I basically lead bird walks at three places, uh, the three that you mentioned, uh, and I, I see all three of them. Uh, I live fairly close to Arthur Pack Park and the Mason Center, so those are... I'm driving past them on Thornydale regularly, so I go there regularly. And uh, here, in addition to leading bird walks, I'm a docent and I do roving, and I participate in quarterly bird surveys here. So the answer is all three. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about the last time you went on a bird walk and some of the highlights? The last bird walk was at Arthur Pack and the Mason Center. It was uh, today's Thursday. It was 12 days ago. Mm-hmm. Tucson Audubon is limiting their walks now to five people, so there were five others on the walk. Normally, I might have 10 or 12. Sure. We do the Mason Center first where we meet, and there's bird feeders there, but it's it's more of a, just a typical desert habitat, so there isn't a great diversity of birds. But Arthur Pack has a pretty wide diversity of birds because it's— the, the centerpiece of Arthur Pack is a golf course, yes. and we have permission to respectfully uh, bird around the perimeter of the golf areas, and there are three ponds there, so they have water birds mm-hmm. seasonally, uh, especially in the cooler months when ducks are here a great deal from November through through March. Okay. We get the, a diversity of habitats. We get desert, we get water, we get fairways, which actually uh, attract birds, and we get scattered trees. Uh, so it's a nice diversity. My last bird walk there, people were really taken by two birds that like the fairways, which are western meadowlarks and western bluebirds. Uh-huh. There have been flocks of both of those birds uh, at Arthur Pack consistently throughout the winter. Hmm. They were often on the fairways. People particularly enjoyed seeing those. Sometimes, you know, the waterfowl can be a highlight. Uh, wasn't so much a highlight uh, the last time I was there. But the openness of the of the golf uh, course provides trees. So it's a pretty good place for raptors also because... Hmm. In fact, interestingly, on one of my walks previously, we were watching a red-tailed hawk on the side, and we were watching about 15 or 20 meadowlarks feeding on a, on a tee yeah. area. We turned around to see another bird for about two or three minutes. We turned back, and the red-tailed hawk is in the tree. All the meadowlarks are gone. And then one birder uh, says, hey... He's eating something. <laughs> and then the next birder says, yeah, and it looks like a bird. And then a third birder says, yeah, and it's bright yellow feathers. Uh-huh. And then everybody realized he was, in fact, eating one of the metal <laughs> larks that we had just been looking at. 
uh, just a, just a few minutes earlier, which is an unusual. For the most part, red-tailed hawks are are, are, are mammal eaters, uh, yes. but it sort of did prove the point that uh, you know we get these generalizations and stereotypes in our head. They may be true 85% of the time, maybe 90% of the time, but I think we were actually observing one of the other 15% of the times when, when we had a red-tailed hawk actually eating another bird. Mm-hmm. That was particularly interesting, and it was sort of one of those, wow, I'm seeing a special moment. You know, people have this ambivalence. Wow, how cool is this? What are the odds we would have seen this? At the same time, it's, oh, one of those beautiful meadowlarks we were just admiring a few minutes ago has now been pulled to pieces. So um, it kind of highlights some of the dimensions of birding. Sure. When you are out birding, what is one thing that you have to remind yourself of? I'll answer in a context of not leading bird walks. When I'm out in the context of uh, being on my own. You know, I do like to see unusual birds. I do. I am somewhat of a moderate rarity chaser. You know, something unusual shows up and, you know, I want to see it. It may not be on my life list or it may be, I've, maybe I've never seen it in Arizona or Pima County. And so I'll go. And uh, one of the things I have to remind myself is it'll be great if I see this bird. But you know what? Uh, I can't make that the be-all and end-all. I have to appreciate whatever the universe presents to me, whatever shows up, however it shows up. So I have to remind myself of that because there is that part of me, like many birders, I'm a little obsessive-compulsive, a higher pursuit of mastery, and I want to see and accomplish things and build my list. But at the same time, uh, that's not the most important aspect of birding. But there is that driven part of me that it needs reminding. And it's sort of enjoy whatever shows up. But I do need to remind myself. (laughs) That's fair. When you talk about enjoyment, what would you say you enjoy most about birding? Well, I would say uh, I'll start off by talking a little bit about people who uh, create games, video games, uh, other types of games, you know, they talk about there being a sweet spot in between. You don't want the game to be too easy and too simple and too mastered too quickly. An example of that would be tic-tac-toe, right? We were all, as a kid, tic-tac-toe, but it didn't take very long to realize, you know, whether I'm X or whether I'm O, if I know what I'm doing, every game is going to end at a tie, you know? So it's, it's too simple, we're not going to spend our lives being tic-tac-toe people sure. unless we're with our, you know, five-year-old son or grandson. At the other end, you don't want things to be so dauntingly complex and difficult that it can lead to frustration and lack of, you know, enjoyment. And so I find birding hits that sweet spot because on the one hand, you know, uh, you can learn a lot pretty quickly and enjoy birds like right from the start. But, you know, whether it's learning identification skills or understanding the birds and knowledge about the birds, you never are going to ever reach a point where you feel like, oh, well, that's all I need to know or all all the skills I need, (laughs) right? So it provides a lifetime, really, uh, of development and learning and enjoying and appreciating. So I've been doing this for more than 30 years. It's never stale, never stale. 
And uh, that's what I enjoy about it. Hmm. Speaking of 30 years ago, <laughs> when did you first take an interest in birding? I sort of dabbled in the 1970s briefly. Um, I got my first bird guide. An interesting little aside about my first bird guide. It was a Peterson guide. He okay. was the first in on this. He had a 1934 edition, and then he had a second edition. Then he had a third edition in 47. And then he went a long period of time before he did his fourth edition. Like, I don't remember what it is, in 79 or 80. So I had, like, the 47 edition in the 70s. And I, I was using that, and, and I realized one day just how old this was because in the Kestrel section, it said – there's a good chance you'll see them on telegraph poles. It did not say <laughs> on telephone poles. And I thought, wow, how really? And I thought, well, you know, this is probably language that came forth from the 1934 edition was carried forward. Sure. And maybe in 1934, there were still more telegraph poles than telephone poles. <laughs> I, I don't really know. But uh, so I did have a guide and I did pursue it somewhat, but it didn't really take and it really took around 1990. Mm. I would say that was the real start. I really got into it. And I do, I think, understand why it took more then, if you want me to yeah, sure. talk about that. Back in the 70s, it was more of a solitary pursuit uh, on my part. Mm -hmm. And there really wasn't as much of an established birding community. You know, we didn't have the internet and we, you know... And there wasn't as many clubs and activities or places and ways to meet other people that shared your passion for birds. So I think it didn't really take us. I wasn't really engaged with others, and it wasn't a growing kind of thing. But yeah. by 1990, that had started to change. I met other birders. So there was more avenues for really connecting with other people, and I mm -hmm. think that made a big difference. Made it easier to get into that. Yes. Thinking back even further, mm. what would you consider your earliest memory of a bird? Well, the context for the answer is that I grew up in, in uh, Brooklyn, New York, mm -hmm. in a working class neighborhood in a small apartment, not conducive to a lot of birds or birding. And we didn't have cats or dogs, but my mother had this idea of getting a canary. Mm. Which she did. And we had, I'd say from the time I was pretty young, I don't know, seven, up through my teen years, we probably had about five or so canaries. Then mm. one would pass away, we'd get another one. Mm. I, I, I was put in charge of taking care of the bird. Sure. I would feed the bird. I would change the bird's cage. Some of these birds uh, were incredible singers. One in particular was just gorgeous and loud and ringing and it was off the charts one or two others didn't sing at all probably mm. a female mm. uh, i'm guessing you know the birds they brought color into the life because they were either yellow or so they're some of some are bred to be orange mm -hmm. uh so they were colorful they sang beautifully uh, they there was a a responsibility and a connection because I took care of them. Sure. So I think it really um, started the ball rolling as uh, far as a connection to birds for me. Hmm. Even though, ironically, they were caged birds. Yeah. Uh, but. Hmm. Leading bird walks, you probably encounter plenty of new birders. 
and are often asked for advice. What is a piece of advice you would share with our listeners who may be new to birding? Yeah, one thing I um, I make it a point to say on almost every bird walk that I lead is to let people know that most of what I know and most of what bird trip leaders know are not the product of, of talent or being gifted. Uh, because I think especially when you're new, you can experience frustration. And you could look at somebody who's a leader and say, oh, wow. He, oh, he knows, oh, I don't I could, I didn't get that distinction or, you know, and it could, well, maybe I'm just not cut out to be a birder. The reality is uh, 90% of it uh, is um, experience. It's simply experience. I'm not better than you are. I'm simply much more experienced. And I took a slow learning curve, more than 30 years to get here. And I think it's important for people to hear that so they don't grow frustrated and they, they, can, they can have a vision and a path to see, you know, that it's, it's, increment, it's going to incrementally grow. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to know from the outset. So that one of the best things to do as a new birder is simply to get out and bird more often. Exactly. And to do it with other people. And, you know, accomplished birders are no different than other successful people, they're often the people who uh, maybe have even failed the most. Hmm. Highly successful people, if you read biographies, typically have failed a lot and, and often failed a lot more. Yes. But they haven't allowed that to, uh, you know, stop them. Uh, so a lot of times, especially in social situations, you know, if, if we say something is, is such is bird A, and then we get corrected and it's bird B. You know, there can be a certain ego thing or a certain, you know, loss of face or the oh, embarrassment that somebody experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to kind of like try to let go of that. And when I'm on walks and somebody, you know, I try to not identify the bird right away. I try to let people work at it. Mm-hmm. And that's how we're all learning. And if they work at it, and some people are hesitant to offer something because they don't want to be embarrassed. You know, others do. And when people do, and it turns out to not be what they first said, I just kind of gently try to like, so what was it about that bird that made you think it was that? Hmm. And then eventually, in a gentle way, get to a place where like, why, why it wasn't that bird or what it is it about the bird you thought it was that doesn't match, you know, this bird. Is. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just a gentle learning experience. So I try to have a relaxed atmosphere so the people feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing. When it comes to bird identification, what resource have you found to be the most useful? I mentioned to you prior to, to our formal conversation that one of my nicknames for myself is 20th century man because uh you know a lot of the latest technology I, I, i'm not i'm not what you call a rapid adapter so my, and this answer kind of reflects that in a way but i think it is important to to note i think having a real good bird guide you know even I'll I'll be specific. I, I a lot of the guides are really good. I I have many guides at home, and sure. Nat Geo National Geographic is excellent. 
But I think Sibley's, uh, the large volume, mm-hmm. I think it's particularly good for like beginner birders or early on birders. And how it distinguishes itself from some of the others is for each species, he'll often, depending on the bird, he can have three, four, five, six illustrations yes. of a bird, right? And if you think about it, birds, often their plumage is different depending on whether they're male or female, mm-hmm. whether they're juvenile or adult. Mm-hmm. There are different subspecies across the country of the same spe- uh, species. Sure. And there are other guides that are good. There's one specific guide of Southeast Arizona, which mm. is a very good guide. has good things about it. But it, for many of the birds, it has one photo of the bird. Mm. And uh, for birds that, you know... Uh, male and female, it's it can be confusing because the bird we're seeing right now does not match the picture. Sure. So I do think that Sibley's Guide is a really excellent investment. Uh, it's a go-to book. It's not something you carry out in the field with you because it's too big. Yes. But it's good to go back to it after you've done a bird walk or or you've uh, you know uh, missed something or you want to see something. Or I keep it in my car oftentimes mm-hmm. um, just so that... You know, I'm not walking around carrying it, but when I get back to the car, I, c- I can look in it. So, yeah, again, that's old school. It's uh, it's printed page. But I think, you know, in this age where we are into our smartphones, which is great, have no problem with that, we don't want to overlook that something can be comprehensive and really good. So uh, I really like recommending that to people. Occasionally, uh, I'll get a beginner type question from somebody mm-hmm. and I'll ask, oh, do you have that? And they'll say no, and um, they would have maybe gotten an answer to their question if they did have it. So, Mm. yeah. That's one of the reasons I enjoyed the Sibley Guide. I have the West Coast version, and I appreciated having the different variations. Because then if I took a picture of a particular bird, I could compare it to these variations and identify, okay, it was an immature male version of this bird. Uh, so I found that very helpful. Sure. So to be clear, you know, the Sibley comes in two forms. Mm-hmm. And uh, the smaller East Coast, the Eastern and Western, which can fit into your pocket and are good for bringing out in the field. And I actually, when I do bird walks, I do bring the Western one in. Okay. I wear a vest and I find a vest really helpful as a bird leader. Sure. Because, uh, you know, I have my cell phone here. I, I do do eBird, and so, but I don't. I don't like doing eBird while I'm leading a walk. It's yeah. just it, it, my my eyes are being taken off the birds too much. Yes, but I do know their four letter abbreviation, so I just have a little pad and pencil here, my uh, smartphone. I I have a guide because sometimes we'll see something, and you don't get always get the most perfect look, and mm-hmm. so I'll open the book and show people, and, and they really appreciate that. So, uh, and then there's an Eastern version of that, but. My original point really had to do with the large volume. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, What is something that you've purchased for less than $100 (laughs) that has had the largest impact on your birding experience? Well, you know, I thought about this with the uh, Sibley's Guide Mm -hmm. and the Vest. I don't really use apps very much. I, I do have Merlin, which is free. And binoculars and scopes cost a lot more than $100. Sure. So um, I think for that one, I just have to refer back to the Sibley and, uh, you know, wearing a vest. Also, also vest, you, you can have water. You bring water. So if you have a book and water and a smartphone and uh, a little pad to jot things down. So that's basically my answer on that. So just being able to conveniently carry those items with you. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the bird segment uh, where my guest has a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. 
For this episode, Ray has chosen the burrowing owl. Where are these owls found? On the ground. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't resist that. Uh, Well, uh, where are they found uh, can mean like what's their range or where in a given habitat, what part of a habitat they're in. So uh, feel free to dabble in both. Okay, I'll I'll do both. Owls are my favorite group. And if I had to have a favorite group, uh, my wife once made me pick my favorite bird. I said, honey, uh, I, I, there's too many contenders. She said, by tomorrow, you know, she made a game out of it. Tell me your favorite bird. And I did pick the great horned owl uh, because owls are my favorite group. And, and they're accessible and they're in our suburban neighborhoods. And, and we see what, in fact, as we speak, as you know, uh, I'll tell our listeners here in Tahona Shul Park, there is a great horned owl. Uh, within uh, 10 yards of us, roosting for the day. Yes. I just turned and looked up in that direction. So I, I love owls, and somebody had already, one of your earlier guests already picked great horned owl. Yes. So uh, I went with burrowing owl, and I'll tell you why. There's so many cool things about this bird. I had to actually make notes here. Uh, so we're not on uh, we're not on a video here, so people will see me looking down here, but... Th- so many cool things about this bird. I had to, I had to jot them all down. So we'll start with the fact that the bird is um, about between nine and ten inches tall. Mm-hmm. It's very cute and adorable. It has long legs. It's usually on the ground. I believe this is true. It is the only owl in the world that nests exclusively underground. Mm. There are a couple of others who can. Uh, on uh, some of them do it, but not exclusively. Considering the name, do they create their own burrows? Uh, they generally do not. Mm. And when we get into where you find them, that that will become apparent. So they generally find openings that fit their size and meet their needs. However, they can create them. And I did read that uh, in some parts of the country. Some do do that, and I think it might be Florida. Uh, the bird is basically a west of the Mississippi bird. Okay. But, they're, uh, but they have a very large range. They extend down into Mexico, Central America, and South America, and the Caribbean. And hmm. there's a disjunct population in Florida. Hmm. And so it, this bird has multiple subspecies. Sure. Uh, for the most part, they don't dig their own burrows, but some do. The bird is very diurnal, uh, meaning it's active during the day. It also likes, and by active, it can hunt during the day. It tends to hunt a little more concentrated uh, dawn and dusk. But it has these burrows, which in addition to nesting in, it also roosts in at night. Mm-hmm. And so during the day, you see them standing in front of their roost. They, they're on the ground in an, in an open space, standing often out in the open. I'm not sure when they sleep. I, I think they have one of these sleep a little bit here, a little bit there kind of a habit because mm-hmm. they, they can hunt at night also, and, and uh, yet you see them active in the daytime. They're uh, cute. They're adorable. At the same time, they have yellow eyes, and there's an intensity. Uh, when you show your photo for your podcast listeners, they'll see they have yellow eyes, and there's an intensity in their eyes. So... This bird pulls off something that's not easy to pull off. It is simultaneously cute and adorable <laughs> and intense looking, you know, mm. at the same time, uh, which is 
uh, pretty unusual. Uh, other cool things about them, they're semi-colonial. Uh, and when we talk locally about where they can be found, uh, there is a colony of them uh, nearby. They're fairly approachable. Uh, they, they don't spook easily. I'll mm. get into that in, in a, a bit. Uh, they're rather confiding and approachable as, as birds go. They have this cool bobbing up and down motion that they do, mm-hmm. which we also associate with other birds like a rock wren, for example, where they just kind of do uh, sometimes what are referred to as deep knee bends. They're often not, not, not around here so much, but they are often associated with prairie dog towns. Okay. This is one of the places... Their range is through the prairies, and uh, they were very connected to prairie dog towns, but prairie dog towns have been being decimated as development Mm. has progressed in the last century, Uh, so that's not quite as much. So you can actually visit these birds and really get, you know, two cool things in one visit. You can get prairie (laughs) prairie dogs (laughs) and burrowing owls, you know, at the same uh, location. Give you an idea of the kinds of places that they can be found. We have um, rangeland, agricultural land, roadsides, prairies, deserts, sandy areas, pastures, golf courses, airports, vacant lots, and in vacant lots within housing developments. Hmm. So they need uh, some kind of an opening in the ground, uh, sometimes in developments, you know, you. Maybe a development got deserted or it's incomplete, or there are areas where, in agricultural areas, there are canals that where burrows actually develop in the the water canal. Openings are actually uh, created. So basically what they want is a place to nest in the ground, and they prefer open areas without too many trees. It it, it makes them uh, feel safer. Hmm. They're being very terrestrial. They're, They're vulnerable to prey from above. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, we, you know, hawks and owls, other owls and mm-hmm. hawks. So if it's kind of uh, cl- as close to treeless as possible, it's even more attractive to them because they can be particularly uh, uh, alert. And since they're close to their burrows, they don't have to worry so much because if a predator approaches, they can exactly. easily tuck themselves exactly. inside. So that's a nice segue into where you can find them. And, and then I'll talk about having seen them there. In the Tucson area, they're sometimes seen in the South Tucson. They've a little bit at uh, the San San Javier del Bac Mm -hmm. mission. But the two main places are in agricultural area in Marana Mm -hmm. and also just north of Picacho Peak State Park in what's called the Santa Cruz Flats, another agricultural area on the west side of I-10 north north of Picacho Peak. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a good number of them there because it's agricultural and there's lots of uh, naturally occurring burrows in the ground because mm-hmm. canals have been built to carry water. The canal may be there decades and eventually they develop little openings and erosion yes. comes in and the burrowing owls are going to love erosion mm-hmm. uh, in terms of creating a nest. In terms of recommending, uh, the place that I would most recommend where I find they're most reliable, and I've say I've been here a few dozen times, and maybe two times, I did not see a burrowing out, out of dozens of times. Hmm. And that's in Marana at a place called the Water Reclamation Facility. It's on Stingray Road in Marana. It is a hotspot. Uh, if you go to eBird and, and in the hotspot section, you start typing in uh, uh, the shortcut, actually, is, is if you put crossroads 
<laughs> and a space and then the letter A, it'll pop up as your as the first hotspot. You know, okay. uh, so you don't even have to you don't have to do the full name. You know, like with eBird, once you learn uh, what's distinctive enough to get you there the soonest, it, it saves you time. Sure. So. But this is about a, a mile-long road that leads to a water treatment, water reclamation facility. And Tucson Water owns some of the land along this road. And they, uh, they have promoted and encouraged the burrowing owls by putting artificial piping in there. Oh. So in addition to natural burrows, they also will take to uh, facsimiles like you know, PVC piping and stuff. Mm-hmm. So Tucson Water has put in several of these in that area. And they're along the road, right along Sting, Stingray Road. I, I see eBird checklists as high as 12 or more hmm. can be seen at one time. Huh. It's more typical maybe to see two, three, four, five. But like I said, you almost always see the, see them all. And here's one really cool thing. There's one that's been there um, regularly now for months, right along the road where, where your cars go. And a curious thing about birds, they're threatened by human movement. They're seemingly not so threatened by vehicular movement. Hmm. So they will tolerate vehicles moving near them that have humans <laughs> inside them looking at them. And unless you, if you don't, as long as you don't make wild gestures from inside the car, you can get pretty darn close to them that you never would by foot. So there's, hmm. there's one along the road on Stingway Road, one burrowing owl that you can get in your car to within 15 feet of. Oh, wow. And when I go there, sometimes, you know, I'll, whatever I'm eating, my snack or my lunch, I've, I've done this a couple of times. I stop at the owl and I have my lunch and, and he's in front of the hole. And it's like lunch with a burrowing owl. You know, he just doesn't, he doesn't care about you. They're really cute. And, you know, you have these funny little things. So, for example, I'm, the other day I'm eating and a plane flies overhead and it's pretty loud. And, and I see him, he's looking up at it. He's seeing, he keeps looking up and it's, it's as if, oh, he's, you know, is he thinking, <laughs> well, that's a particular noisy bird up there. Uh, but the point is that you can, you know, he'll stand there for 45 minutes or an hour, and then maybe he'll go inside the hole for a while. And maybe he takes a nap and then comes back out again. But you can get really close to them hmm. and enjoy them uh, in that particular location. That's the one I would recommend the most. Okay. Is there anything else you think our listeners might want to know about burrowing owls? Uh, well, we're fortunate here in the uh, southeastern Arizona in that the burrowing owl, some of them like migrate extensively. Some of them are what called partial migrators. In, uh, in other words, maybe not long distances. And then some are year-round residents. And in our area, many of them are year-round residents. So hmm. in many parts of the West, you can only see this bird during its breeding season. Hmm. But uh, here in, in the places I mentioned to you, you can see them year round. Oh. And so that makes it even cooler uh, and easier. Yeah, that's helpful to know if we're going out looking for one. Yeah. All right. I'd like to thank Ray for joining us today. And I'd like to thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening to this episode from. You can visit lookingatbirds.com for show notes. 
a show transcription, and pictures of the burrowing owl. Until next time, keep looking at birds.